You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We turn now to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. If you found your place there, let's pray before we begin. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to view life and our work and our labor and all things from your perspective. Help us to sense Solomon's frustration and anxiety and despair, but not to enter into that. Help us to see things as you would have us to see them today. We pray that you would instruct us and teach us now from your word, that as it is properly preached, that your voice would be heard in the text of Scripture. Thank you for the confidence that we have that you control all things and that they are all under your sovereign hand. And we bless you and praise you this morning and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Cornell told me this morning that he would, had chosen some songs to lead us in worship that were a bit more upbeat in terms of the message of God's faithfulness and love and compassion and goodness and, and strength and might and power, etc. And I said, well, it's probably good because by the time we leave here this morning, I'll have them so depressed they'll want to suck on the business end of a pistol. And so that's my goal today is to let you enter into the vexing world of Solomon and what it is like, like to look at life as it is under the sun. And uh, that's our vantage point. In verse 2, Solomon kind of gives us the conclusion to his work without saying that uh, without God all things are vanity. That is certainly the direction that Solomon is going. As he says to us in verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then the, the follow-up question to that is what then is any is what then is the profit or advantage to a man in all of the labor with which he labors under the sun? Is there really any advantage or profit if it is all vanity? And now Solomon is going to answer the question that he asks in verse three, uh, in verses four and following. But I want you to understand how depressing and despairing it is to look at life from Solomon's vantage point. It is quite vexing to us to think that. You and I, if there is no God, we're just molecules in motion. We're just atoms clanging about in a rather meaningless universe. And we're just molecules bumping into each other that are uh, on top of a rather average-sized rock revolving around a rather average-sized star in a pretty non-really, not, not, not an extraordinary solar system that is just one of billions of like solar systems in a rather average galaxy that's just one of billions of similar galaxies in the universe, at least as far as we know of. So what is the advantage then of working under the sun if we're just molecules in motion, right? This is the despair that Solomon had come to in investigating and analyzing life as it is lived just under the sun. And we ought to feel the weight of the despair. We ought to feel it. Not that we have to enter into it and experience the pain, because without experiencing the pain or the consequences of Solomon's folly, you and I can observe it from a distance and sympathize with it and enter into it and understand it all the while evaluating the words of Solomon from the perspective of above the sun, from God's vantage point. And that's why we're doing, and, that, and that's what we're doing, and that is part of the prophet of the book of Ecclesiastes. So we're trying to enter into Solomon's despair and to feel the weight of it. If we are just molecules in motion, if there really is no God to whom we are accountable, if there's no hell below us and only sky above us, there's no eternal judgment, there's no eternal weight of scales, then what is it that is the advantage to all of our life under the sun? And so Solomon answers that question by observing first nature. 
And what we're going to do in the, in the rest of this chapter and in chapter 2 is Solomon is going to take us through his investigation, his observations, his exploration of all of creation and all of life and all of its different venues under the sun. He's going to walk us through all of that so that we can see how it is that he came to the conclusion that he came to, to, came to once he analyzed and evaluated life as it is lived just under, just on this soil, under the sun. So that's where we pick it up in verse 4. And I want you to notice here that Solomon is going to describe a lot of activity and a lot of work and a lot of action. And the end of it all is that there is really nothing that is changed, nothing that is new, and nothing that is remembered. That's our outline for this morning. In spite of all of the activity under the sun, nothing is new, or sorry, nothing is changed, nothing is new, and nothing is remembered. I want you to read with me verses 4 through 11. I'll show you the outline as we work our way through that. We're only going to be looking at verses 4 to 7 today, saying that nothing has changed. Chapter 1, verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. This is nothing is, is changed. Verse 5, also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south and blowing toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on a circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. See, nothing has changed. Now notice that nothing is new. Verse 8, all things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. Nothing is new. And then verse 11, nothing is remembered. There's no remembrance of earlier things and also of the latter things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Now all of this is Solomon's observation of whether or not there is any any profit to all of our work which we do under the sun. And he is aiming to show us that life, all of this stuff analyzed from just under the sun leads us to the conclusion that everything is vanity. Because nothing is changed and nothing is new and nothing will be remembered. And so he looks at creation, at the, the motion of these natural phenomena that are around us, the earth, the sun, the wind, and the rain or the waters, and all of that activity and all of that work that those things uh, 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 do under the sun, all of that really accomplishes nothing because in the end, the earth remains and everything is as it was before. Nothing has changed. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. The more things change, the more they are just like what they were like. And that's what Solomon is trying to show us. So let's look at these four things, the, the four elements. There is the earth, there is the sun, there is the wind, and then there is the water. Um, it's been observed that Solomon cites all four of the things which the ancients considered to be the elements of creation. Did you notice that? Earth, wind, fire. Earth, wind, fire, and water. These four things, the ancients considered them to be the essential elements out of which everything was made. And you'll notice that Solomon mentions the earth, he mentions the sun, he mentions the wind, and he mentions the water. Now, I don't think that Solomon is adopting a pagan worldview and saying these are the, the four spirit essences that make up creation or anything like that. That's not what he is doing. What he is doing is he is citing all of the things under the, that the, the ancients would have considered the essential elements under heaven, under the sun. He is, he is going to matter the earth, the, the, the sun, the wind, and the water, everything that makes up creation. He, this is his way of describing creation in its totality. Now, there are certain things that I want you to observe about these four elements, these four things, before we look at them individually. First, I want you to observe that Solomon notes a permanence, a permanence or a, a continuing in each of these instances. In verse 4, it is the earth that remains forever. In verse 5, 
It is the, the sun that hastens to its place again. In verse 6, it is the wind which always returns. The end of the verse. And in verse 7, it is the rivers that flow into the sea. And from where the place where they flowed, there they flow again. Do you notice that? They return again and it remains. There is an element of permanence, of stability in each one of these things. That This cycle just continues because he is going to describe a toilsome and perpetual and monotonous cycle that is almost mind-numbing. Second, I want you to observe that Solomon, that there is a monotony in the words that Solomon uses. A monotony in the words. And this, I think, is intentional because in Hebrew poetry, normally Hebrew poetry followed kind of this, this pattern. They would state something and then they would state the same thing in entirely different words for effect or for clarification, sometimes by contrast. So you read through the Psalms and you say, you see phrases like, the Lord is my strength and my shield, the Lord is my defender in whom I trust. Two statements that both say the exact same thing or similar things, but, but something of a contrast and different words. So when you read in Hebrew poetry, a monotony to the words that is used, it is intentional. And that's what Solomon is doing. There's a monotony. A generation comes and a generation goes. And the sun rises and the sun sets. And then the sun rises and the wind blows to the north and then to the south. And then from the south, back to the north. And they come from the north and back to the place where they came again. And the rivers flow into the sea and back to the places where the rivers flow. There they flow again. There are all of these words that are repeated. Generation, sun, rivers, flow, again, return. These ideas. There is a monotony to this. It's, it, it, it is a monotony that we are supposed to feel just by reading the words. It's a monotony because it's repetitive and it's repetitive because it's monotonous and it's monotonous because it's repetitive and it's repetitive because it's monotonous. Do you feel that? That's how you're supposed to feel in reading through the passage. You're supposed to even just sense there's just a monotony even to how he describes the monotony of this endless, seemingly purposeless, unchanging cycle that is present in what happens on the earth and then with the sun and then with the wind and then with the rain and the water. So let's look first of all at the sun in verse 4. Or sorry, the earth in verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Notice that there's a contrast here. Something is coming and going and something is staying here forever. And the contrast is between the, the people who step onto the stage of earth and step off of the stage of earth, but the earth itself remains forever. The earth is unchanging. Uh, it stays here. There is stability here. It is. It remains. It is permanent. And yet there is something that is constantly changing. And what is it that is constantly changing? The people who step onto it and leave. A generation goes, and another generation comes to take its place. And a generation goes, and a generation comes to take its place. A Solomon had watched his father take over the throne from Saul, and he had taken over the throne from his father David. And Solomon could have gone all the way back to creation, and you kind of get this sense of a monotony when you read through the genealogies in Genesis that so-and-so begat so-and-so, and he lived to be such-and-such years old, and then he died. And that person begat so-and-so and lived to be such-and-such years old, and then he died. There's a certain monotony even just in observing the rise and the fall of generation after generation. So Adam has sons, and he passes away, and his sons have sons, and they pass away, and his sons' sons have sons and pass away, and on it goes all the way through to Noah. Noah picks it up with only eight people left after the flood. His sons have sons, and from those sons come nations. And out of the nations, God chooses one man, Abraham, to make of him a great nation. And Abraham had sons and died, and his sons had sons and died, and his sons' sons had sons and died, all the way down to Moses, who took the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt into the uh, into the wilderness wanderings, and an entire generation passed away, and a new generation took its place that then entered into the land, and hundreds of years went by, and people lived and died and came on the scene and passed off the scene 
until Saul took the throne, and then David, and then Solomon, and Solomon is looking back at all of human history, and what does he observe? The earth remains, but generations come and generations go. The, the world is like a stage that the, 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 the setting never changes. It never changes. And all of the actors step onto the stage, and they say a few words, and then they exit stage left. Now, some of the actors step onto the stage, and they're very well-dressed. They have lots of bling. They have lots of things, but they still exit stage left. Some of the actors step onto the stage, and they don't, they're not as nicely dressed. They don't have as much bling. Some actors step onto this stage, and they say a lot of things, and they, they, they're very memorable, but eventually they approach stage left, the stage left, and they disappear, only for the attention of the audience to be focused again at the entrance of a whole new generation of people that step onto the stage. And, but they are all forgotten, and a generation goes, and a generation comes, but the stage remains the same. Our costumes change. The languages that the actors speak change, but the stage remains the same. The stage itself is unchanged, and it remains, and yet generations come and do all of this work and all of this labor, and they pass away, and another one takes its place. So what is the advantage then, verse 3? What is the advantage to a man in all that he labors under the sun? What is the good of all the work that generation after generation does if they just exit and they are quickly forgotten? Mark Twain once said, the world will lament you for an hour and then forget you forever. That's encouraging, isn't it? This is your daily dose of encouragement. The world will lament you for an hour and then forget you forever. Today's celebrities are tomorrow's obituaries, another person said. Matthew Arnold, in his poem, Rugby Chapel, and this will sound familiar to some of you, he said this, most men eddy about here and there, eat and drink, chatter and love and hate, gather and squander, are raised aloft, are hurled in the dust, striving blindly, achieving nothing, and then they die. That is the story of most of mankind, is it not? And does not this strike us as an utter vanity, the fact that men come and men go, but the earth remains forever? This in itself is is vain. Why is that? Because we are the immortal ones. We are the ones that will live forever, because all men will live forever, either, either in a place of eternal conscious torment or in a place of eternal conscious joy and bliss, but all men will live forever. We are created to be immortal, to live on and on. And the earth is not God's crowning jewel in His creation. The earth was created for us, not us for the world. We we are not here to serve the world, the earth. The earth is here to serve us. And so we, men, are the crowning joy in God's creation because we are created in the image of God. We are immortal beings. We are designed to live forever. So how vain is it and frustrating is it that we pass away and the earth remains forever? That is completely backwards to the way that all of us think it should be. This earth is a disposable earth, and yet it remains, and we who will live forever, ever, poof, go into the dust. And our memories become nothing. Jerome once said this, What is more vain than this vanity that the earth, which was made for human stays, but humans themselves, the lords of the earth, suddenly dissolve into the dust? Macbeth. In Shakespeare's play Macbeth, when Macbeth is informed about the death of the queen, Macbeth laments the brevity and the, the uselessness of life when he says this, the way to dusty death, out, out, brief candle. And he's talking about life being just this brief candle that just goes out. Out, out, brief candle. And then Macbeth goes on to say this, life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. That's how we feel, right? The generation comes. Generation goes. The earth is here. Why is it that we, who are immortal beings, pass away, 
almost into insignificant and nothingness, while the earth, which really is disposable and will eventually pass away, seems to remain forever. This is life as it is evaluated just from under the sun. Solomon, again, is not allowing God's perspective in any of this. This is just his evaluation of things as it is in this realm under this creation. And notice that there is a circular and monotonous cycle here as the generations come and the generations go. Now let's look at the second one in verse 5. The sun. Also the sun. Now Solomon is illustrating this vanity, this profitlessness to labor, this uselessness of labor. He is illustrating it with four things. The generations that come on the earth. Second, the sun. Verse 5. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. This fiery ball under which we grind out in our labor the few and fruitless days of our existence just goes from one side of the heavens to the other side of the heavens. And then while you are sleeping, it hastens back to its starting gate, and it does the whole cycle all over again. And again. And again. Does anything change? East to west. Every single day, east to west. Up in the morning, down at night. Hastening back to its starting place again, up in the morning and down at night. And nothing really changes in that, is it? The sun races across the sky from east to west. All of this activity, all of this activity that goes on under the sun, the racing of the sun itself, like a, like a, like a runner running its course and running its race, and yet what changes? The sun doesn't really change, does it? Now you say, no, Jim, hold on. I have noticed that the days get longer and then they get shorter. That's change. And the sun in its course moves from the southern horizon close to the northern horizon, then back down towards the southern horizon again. That's change. Is it really? Because the days get longer and then they get shorter. Then they get longer and then they get shorter. Then they get longer and then they get shorter. And it gets light and then it gets dark. And then light and dark and then light and dark. And light and dark, longer and shorter, from the southern horizon to the north and back to the south and then back to the north and back to the south. And Do you see that? Nothing really changes, does it? But it has the appearance of change, does it not? It seems as if the days are getting longer. We get excited about that. Days are getting shorter. We're a little bit more discouraged about that. It's bright. It's light. It's high noon. It's in the east. It's in the west. All of this appears to change. Look, there's the sun. It's in the east. Now it's in the west. It's bright. It's dark. It's in the north. It's in the south. It's high up in the sky. It's bright today. It's not so bright. Is any of that really change? This has been going on for thousands of years. It's all changing, but nothing's changed. The earth remains forever. And the sun continues on its course, doing the same thing that the sun has always done since the beginning. And there's a monotony there. Look at the end of verse 5, and this is an interesting word that Solomon uses here. It hastens to its place and it rises there again. Do you ever wake up in the morning and feel like the sun hastened back to its place to rise again? You think, I just went to sleep ten minutes ago and already the sun is back at its starting gate ready to run across the sky again. Now, listen, understand that I, like Solomon, am describing the sun and its course in terms of how it appears to us living under the sun. I am aware that the sun does not revolve around the earth. I believe Solomon was aware of the same thing. Okay, We don't have to believe that. We don't have to think that. That's not what I'm suggesting. This is observing the course of the sun as it runs its race across the sky. This is what it looks like living life under the sun. It hastens back to its place, and it's again. There's a monotony here. It's again and again and again and again. And the word hastens is kind of an interesting word. It's the word that is sometimes translated as pant, panting after something. And why would they translate it pant or hasten or sometimes hurry? Just because what happens when you start to hurry or hasten? You start to pant. You do a lot of running around, you start to pant, and that's the idea. The word can be used positively as well as negatively. When the word is used positively, it's used to describe a an eager longing after something, as in, I longed for God's Word or His commandments, or I longed after knowing God. For instance, in Psalm 
119, verse 131, I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I longed for your commandments. That's the idea. That's the positive, that, that eager panting or desiring of something. But the word is also used negatively to describe a panting from exhaustion and labor, as in a woman in labor. Isaiah 42, verse 14, I have kept silent for a long time. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now, like a woman in labor, I will groan. I will both gasp and pant. And there the idea is in a negative sense of being exhausted. Now, which is it that Solomon means? Is he describing the sun in a positive sense? It's hastening in a positive sense or in a negative sense? Context would suggest that he has here in view the negative sense, that the sun is exhausted in its toil just like you and I are exhausted in our toil. It might be, though, that Solomon, if he's using it in a positive sense, he's striking here a note of irony, that the sun, like a runner that bursts out of its chambers first thing in the morning to run its course with eagerness across the sky, only to find that all of its labor and effort were in vain. So it, it runs back to the beginning, all eager and excited to do the whole thing over again, almost as if we are to, to look at the, the sun in mockery, that it does this with such eagerness to such futility and vanity. But if he is using it in the negative sense, then the idea is that the sun never crosses the finish line. It never completes its work. Is there ever a time when we can say to the sun, you've done your work, you've finished your course, you've kept your pace, you've done what you needed to do, you can stop now. Does the sun ever stop? No, it is this laborious toil and this repetitive monotony of the cycle and the work is never done. That is what creation teaches us. This work is never done. And so that's how Solomon describes the sun, I think, with that, that sense, of, that, that sense of, uh, of negative futility, just like you and I would experience. Now look at the third one, and it is the wind. In verse 6, blowing toward the south and toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. Then notice the north and the south here, and that contrast with the sun in the east and the west, right? The the wind blows along on its circular course, north and south, north and south. He described the sun going from east to west and east to west again. Um, the use of north, south, east, and west in two verses back to back like this is kind of a, a literary device intended to picture that which goes on under all creation. It's kind of Solomon's way of poetically and graphically saying north, south, east, and west. This is what he is observing. The sun goes east to west, the north blows, the wind blows north and south. There is a totality to his description. And this wind blows, and, and this is perhaps the best example of the futility and the vanity and the emptiness of it all that Solomon could give us. The wind blows with all of its fury. Remember the windstorms we had a couple of years ago? The last year, two years ago? The windstorms knocked over all the trees. Some of it came down on your houses, right? The wind blows back and forth, north to south, and nothing changes. And listen, you say, but it took my house and it tipped over my tree. Does that really change? You know how many houses have fallen? Yours wasn't the first. Yours won't be the last. So you fixed your roof. You're still living there. Anything really changed? A lot of change, right? But not really any change. You're still living there. Kingdoms rise and fall. Does anything really change? Houses rise and fall. That tree that tipped over in the yard, another one took its place. Destroyed my peach tree. I got another peach tree planted right in the same plot. I went down and bought a new peach tree. Really nothing has changed other than my peach harvest. Nothing else has changed. I used to get lots of peaches. Now I don't get any peaches. I mean, that has changed, but nobody else gets peaches, right? There are other people who don't get any peaches, so am I any different really than anybody else? What has really changed for us? All the bluster and the movement and the violence and the sound of the wind, what changes? Nothing changes. North to south, north to south again, back to north again, on it goes, circular, returning back to where it was in the beginning. You feel the monotony of it? 
Look at the fourth one, the waters. In verse 7, the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. A lot of flowing going on here. All this blustery of the water pouring over the waterfalls and running down the rivers, emptying into the ocean, and yet the sea is never full. And that idea of this lack of satisfaction and fullness in the sea is something that Solomon will come back to in verse 8 as he begins to apply some of these to our human experience. And we'll look at this in more detail next week, but just notice verse 8. All things are weary, some man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied or filled with seeing, nor is the ear satisfied or filled with hearing. And so here in verse 7, he is describing the sea as being never satisfied or filled with water. The Nile, the Amazon, and the Mississippi all pour into the ocean day after day, week after week, month after month, for years, and yet the ocean is never full. Does the level of it ever change? No, an inch here, an inch there, back and forth, up and down it goes. But does it ever say it's full? Does the sea ever say I've had enough? Dam up all the rivers. No sense pouring into me anymore. I'm full. We've come to the top. It's enough. Does the sea ever do that? No, there is this monotonous cycle where the rivers continue to do this constantly. But is there ever any change? The sea is never full. The sea never reaches the top. And from where the rivers flow, there they flow again. This is the cycle. And it's monotonous. The water that is in the seas goes to the clouds and then back to the rivers and then into the seas. The water that is in the clouds goes to the rivers, into the seas and back to the clouds. The water that is in the river goes into the seas and back to the clouds and back to the rivers again. It's just It's wearisome, isn't it? All things are wearisome. All of this activity on all of these fronts, in all of these arenas. And yet, what has really changed? Has anything really changed? A couple years ago, our family had the opportunity to stop at Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls, the, the horseshoe falls there that we typically call Niagara Falls, the horseshoe falls are 180 feet tall. They pour over that cliff of 150,000 gallons of water every second. That's 6 million cubic feet of water every hour. That is enough to fill a million bathtubs, sorry, every, every minute. Uh, 6 million uh, cubic feet of water every minute. That is enough to fill a million bathtubs every minute. And it has been doing this for decades before you showed up, centuries before you showed up, and it will do this continually long after you are dead and buried and forgotten. What changes? All kinds of bluster and noise. It seems like all kinds of activity it seems like creation, you stand at the edge of that, and it seems like all of creation, the hydrological cycle is changing. But the sea never says, nope, stop, it's had enough. It's never full, it's never satisfied, and it never comes to an end. Do any of these cycles ever come to an end? Generations coming and going, the sun moving around the earth, again, from our perspective, the, the blowing of the wind or the running of the water, do any of these things ever stop? No, they don't stop. There's no end to them. They're endless, they're toilsome, they're repetitive, they're persistent, they keep doing it, and yet, what effect do they have? If this is true in nature, then how much more so is this true in our lives? That's the idea. So now having looked at all four of these, let's back up for just a second and ask ourselves, what do all four of these things have in common? All four of these illustrations. Number one, all of these represent constant change without any change. Constant change without any change. All of them seem to give the impression of change, but it's only illusory. Things are constantly changing, but, but really not. Things really aren't changing at all, are they? We have an election coming up this fall. We have the joy of choosing between a liberal and a liberal. I know, this is going to be exciting, isn't it? I mean, I just, I'm thrilled. Try to contain your excitement at the very thought of what is presented before us. Sometimes I feel like, uh, oh, who was it? Woody Allen 
uh, Woody Allen, who said, more than at any other times in human history, we are at a crossroads. And we have to choose between utter despair and hopelessness and total extinction. Let us pray that we choose wisely. And that's how I sometimes feel like in this election. Let us pray that we choose wisely. But with us, with all the bluster and the activity and the noise and the excitement of what we call an election cycle, and it is a cycle, right? It goes on forever anymore. It is an election cycle. What is going to change after November 8th? With the exception of 1980 and 1984, this is the same election that we have had since before 1960. It's exactly the same thing. And so we, we kick some bums out and we get a whole new a fresh group of faces in Congress. We actually call them freshmen congressmen to give us the illusion that these guys are different than the ones that were before. They're the freshmen congressmen, freshmen senators, freshmen representatives, right? And we change the Supreme Court so it goes, the balance of power goes from conservatives to liberals and back to conservatives and back to liberals again. And so all of that's changing because those old croons eventually die off and they're replaced by a whole new batch of, of old croons who sit there and dictate to us what we're supposed to do. And then in the Senate, we have a whole new group of senators every year, freshman senators and congressmen, all kinds of change. Congress goes from Republican to Democrat to Republican to Democrat and the White House from Democrat to Republican to Democrat to Republican. Is there anything that really changes? So much change, isn't it? It's so exciting to see all the change. But nothing really changes. All of these things that Solomon has illustrated here give the appearance of change, but with no actual change. That's the monotony. That's the monotonous feeling of life under the sun. Everything changes, but nothing changes. And we have a phrase for this. We say the more things change, the more they stay the same. It's the same old what? It's the same old, same old. As the great prophet Yogi Berra once said, it's deja vu all over again. As the who said, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, right? Brand new boss, things are going to be different, things are just the same. Everything changes, everything stays the same. Second, all of these represent a lot of work and energy expended for nothing. A generation comes and they build and they dig and they maintain kingdoms and they raise up armies and they conquer the earth and they pass away and the earth remains the same. And the sun comes up and the sun goes down and moves from horizon to horizon. It's light, it's dark, it's bright, it's east to west, all of its activity, nothing really changes. The wind blows the north and the south, nothing changes. The water runs, lots of rain, waterfalls, floods, blah, blah, blah. Nothing changes. All this work and all of this energy and nothing changes. And so if creation does all of this work and expends all of this energy and nothing changes, what hope do you have in the work and the toil that you do under the sun? It's depressing, isn't it? That's Solomon's point. Third, all of these are intended to picture human experience. They're all intended to picture human experience. How long has the sun been doing its work and the wind and the water? How long has it been doing its work? Since the beginning. Thousands of years. I get 44 years, right? Now, if the sun and the wind and the rain can do all of that work and really accomplish absolutely nothing in thousands of years, what hope do I have in 44? And if God gives me twice that much, what hope do I have in 88 years? Because how often does the sun and the wind and the rain do its work? 24 hours a day, seven days a week continually, right? I take a third of every day off just so I can rest and recuperate. So I can't even maintain that same pace that the wind and the rain and the sun maintain and generations coming and going. I can't maintain that same pace. So what advantage and a profit is there for me in all the work that I do under the sun or you in all the work that you do under the sun? We give ourselves the illusion and we try and convince ourselves that the things that we put our hands to actually change, that they're actually meaningful in some strictly earthly sense. 
that we have some impact. And Solomon is saying, viewed from the vantage point of man, from under the sun, we are so useless. And what we do is just fleeting. And it's vanity. This is the proper perspective to understand about this life. Because this is the accurate assessment of life as it is lived under the sun. It is, Cornell and I were having this conversation this morning. This, since this is the, the viewpoint of the atheist, why don't atheists go home and blow their brains out every night after work? Well, they wouldn't do it every night. They would do it one night after work. But why don't, why doesn't an atheist go home and blow his brains out at night after work? If this is really the effects of his worldview, why doesn't he do that? Why don't atheists that we know live in complete and total despair? For this reason. They have first of all convinced themselves and they are able to live under the delusion that God does not exist and that there is no evidence of His creation. So having lived under that delusion, they just add one more willingly deceived delusion to the mix and it is this delusion that their life actually has meaning and significance. So the atheist lives inconsistent with his worldview. He wants to believe that loving his kids and loving his wife and raising his family and going to work every day have meaning and significance. But he has no basis in his worldview to believe that. He can't honestly believe that anything that he does has any lasting significance since a generation comes and goes and the sun comes up, the wind blows and the waters blow. It affects absolutely nothing. What hope does that pathetic atheist have if he is to live 80 years of his life at labor and work to the point of exhaustion and toil each and every day and to love his wife and to love his kids if it is all totally meaningless? He ought to go home and blow his brains out because that is the actual end result and conclusion of his worldview. The fact that he doesn't only shows that he is living inconsistent with his worldview. He has deluded himself into thinking that there's actually meaning and purpose when his worldview gives him no basis for thinking that whatsoever. This is where Solomon was at. See, Solomon is the consistent practical atheist. If I'm going to consistently look at life as it is under the sun, without God in the perspective, this is the despair that I come to. Douglas O'Donnell, in his book on Ecclesiastes, says, death stands almost boastingly at the end of the corridor of our lives, And death doesn't play favorites. It takes everyone's solid labors and vaporizes them. That is life under the sun. I'm going to offer you some encouragement before we leave because... Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Oh, good, somebody said. (laughs) I want you to notice how how, how Solomon... Notice Solomon's uh, observations from nature when it is removed from God. Take God out of the perspective. This is how he sees nature. Notice how much different this is from how a righteous man would view nature. We look at nature and we ought to be overcome with the, the awe of, God, of grandeur of God's creation. Um, we, a righteous man would look at the stability of the earth, the fact that the earth remains. And a generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains. A righteous man or a righteous woman looks at that and says, we can thank the Creator that the earth is stable. That a generation can come and it can burn up resources, it can use trees, it can dig holes, it can build things, and yet it's going to go, but the earth remains. That we live in a creation that is not teetering on the brink of total collapse and ruin because we burn fossil fuels to cool our homes. That is nonsense. We live in an earth that is stable. It was created that way. It was created for us to use. It is a disposable planet and it remains forever. And we ought to thank God that he has put all of that here for our benefit and our usefulness. And we ought to then look at it it from a Christian perspective. We give glory and praise to God for his goodness in providing for us a stable earth. That we don't have to worry that this generation is going to destroy the planet or the next generation is going to destroy the planet. No, these generations come and go and the earth remains forever. Praise the Lord for this good thing. This is good. It is awesome. That should, that's the righteous man's perspective. <laughs> Not Solomon. Oh, generation comes, generation goes. And the earth remains forever. It's 
that's the negative side of it because that's how Solomon is viewing things. You gotta look at the fact that the sun comes up and it gives life to the plants and it warms us and keeps us warm and gives us energy. These things are great. Looking at the elements of creation, we would praise God and thank God for such a stable creation that does this each and every day. This blessing rises on the horizon, gives us light all day long to work and enjoy the blessings that God has given to us and sets on the other horizon. And we could thank God for this and righteous people do, but not Solomon. This is just another evidence of the usefulness of all of life. And the wind blows and it pollinates our flowers and it changes our air and and moves the clouds in that bring rain, and it gives uh, uh, the ability for ships to transport goods that improve our lives, that the wind is a rich blessing. But Solomon doesn't see any blessing or purpose in the wind. Why? Because he's removed God from the equation. So there can be no purpose or blessing in any of these things. It's just random collision of molecules. And rather than seeing the rain as the blessing that it is, and this cycle of waters flowing into the rivers, and the rivers feeding the plants and the crops that grow up alongside of the rivers, rather than seeing the blessing of that, Solomon can't see any of that. All he can see is this monotonous, endless, repetitive, useless, seemingly vain and futile cycle in all of nature. And he's answering the question, is there any profit to man's work which he does under the sun? The generations, the sun, the wind, and the rain accomplish nothing. So what then is my hope of thinking that anything that I do will have benefit under the sun? Now, Here's the good news, or a good portion of this. We, as Christians, don't live from that perspective. We understand that every cup of cold water given in the name of the Lord will receive its reward. We understand that every injustice will be righted, every wrong will be made right, every righteous deed done will receive a just reward. We understand that this world and under the sun is not the only perspective from which we evaluate the work and the labor that we do. We understand that every activity and every toil that we do under the sun, everything we accomplish that God, that we put our hand to, that God has called us to, every one of those things is view, is weighed on the eternal scales in an eternal perspective. And all of them receive the reward that they are due or the punishment that they are due. We understand that it's not just this life under the sun, but that I can do everything that I do for the glory of Christ in His name, giving thanks to God the Father through Christ because I know that everything that I do at work and in toil and every day that I do it, I do it for His glory and He sees it and He will reward it. And though the the earth may pass away eventually, though the sun and the moon and the stars and everything continue to do what they do and the, sun, and the wind and the rain continues to do what they do, God watches every last thing that you and I do. He takes note of it. And he marks it down, and we have this assurance that we don't live just life as it is under the sun. It's not our vantage point. I can sympathize with Solomon's, I can read his words, and I can sympathize with his perplexity and his despair. I can see it, I can understand understand it. But that's not our vantage point. Again, we have been delivered out of that perspective. We know that our work matters and that our work has some significance. Solomon, later in the book, just to give you a different perspective, Solomon later in the book is going to talk about the blessings of work the purpose of work, that there is profit and advantage in work. But he can't do that from under the sun. Eventually Solomon has to step back and say, God has given us these things. And then when God comes into the equation, then we can see purpose and profit and advantage in our labor. But not without God in the picture. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we are thankful that you have given us a perspective on your creation and on your purpose in creation that Solomon did not have. He's a man who should have known better, but he squandered that wisdom and lived as a practical atheist. And we pray that you would deliver us from ever falling into that that temptation or that trial. Thank you that we have the opportunity to read the words of a man who lived as a fool, 
and that we can learn from them. Give us that wisdom and give us that encouragement in your word to know that we do not labor or toil in vain, but that you measure everything that we do and we will receive a reward just as you have purposed and promised. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.